Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2020, volume 58, number three. My name's David Fazakli, DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month discusses the use of dipagliflozin for a relatively new indication, that of treating type 1 diabetes. So what are the issues? Yes, so uh, the EMA licensed this beginning of last year, 2019, Dipagliflozin is a sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor, SGLT2 inhibitor. So this is the drugs that inhibit the reabsorption of glucose from the collecting tubule in kidneys and therefore you get glycosuria and a reduction in obviously sugar levels in the bloodstream. So they are effective, increasingly used in type 2 diabetes. And they weren't ever licensed for type 1 until, say, just recently, but they were increasingly being used off-label by some endocrinologists and diabetologists. And uh, we discussed the implications of this in the editorial. So the EMA licensed it on the back of some evidence, obviously. What was the evidence saying? Yeah, so they looked at some trials that uh, suggested that you had improved control as measured by HbA1c's, you saw some weight loss and some moderate blood pressure reduction. So they were licensed, but with caveats, because the, the, the fly in the ointment here is that this class of drugs does increase the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis in type 1 diabetics. DKA was first reported as a risk way back in 2015, and the particular problem with SGLT T2 inhibitors is that the presentation of patients with DKA is often quite unusual. Because the MHRA, as you say, issued a warning some time ago when it was being used off-label for type 1 diabetes and warned about diabetic ketoacidosis then. Exactly. So what did the studies so, show? Yeah, so in, in the studies, for example, that in the placebo-controlled study, they found that there was a 4% risk of DKA in the group taking SGLT two inhibitors with insulin compared to about 1% in the group treated with placebo and insulin. So there is that significant increased risk of DKA in this group. And is the EMA's position in line with, say, the United States? No. So what's interesting is in the FDA in the States has not licensed it for type 1 diabetics. They're concerned about the risk. And in the UK, a lot of caveats have been added to the licensed uh, use of it, it must only be used by specialists. Patients need to have a programme of education into ensuring they understand the symptoms and presentation of DKA and know what to do if they should develop that. And also, there is this also caveat that if there's been no improvement in control of your diabetes at six months, it should be stopped. So this is going to be quite difficult to manage practically because you've got lots of people having to um, be involved in the care of the patients feels like it's heading a bit towards shared care. Well, that's always a concern. Absolutely right. And I think particularly because these patients are quite complicated, one of the reasons why they get DKA is actually their blood sugars drop. So patients reduce their insulin use. And it's that reduction in insulin use that then makes them risk of DKA. So it, it's quite a complicated management for these patients. It, it definitely is useful. The risk is that you get mission creep and it becomes that, you know, the pendulum swings too far. We use too much of it and then we get a nightmare with too much DKA occurring. So it's going to be quite difficult, or at least a challenge to introduce and to make sure it's used properly. Yes, because we know this, don't we? Whenever you introduce something which has either got post-market uh, measuring of anything or some sort of element of 
other intervention there's a real risk that that falls off the agenda and the drug is just used without proper attention to those other bits and pieces that need to be done okay thank you very much and our first main article this month is another from our occasional series of prescribing for pregnancy what do we look at this time yes yeah, so we're looking in at asthma this month, uh, Joanna Gerling has done another really excellent comprehensive article on prescribing in pregnancy. And what's great about this article is it actually starts from conception. And we discuss, you know, if you've got an asthmatic uh, woman, the sorts of things that they need to consider even before they're considering being pregnant. And there's some really nice, tight, simple messages in this article, of which I think the most important is that poorly controlled or undertreated asthma poses a greater risk to the unborn than continued use of asthma medication. And I think that's the biggest message. Women need to carry on using their asthma medication should they fall pregnant. But one of the messages also that came out from this is it is quite often that people erroneously think that the medication might be more harmful and, and either try and reduce it themselves or stop taking it during pregnancy. And it's how we counter that that message so yeah. that people carry on taking their absolutely i mean i think one of the points she makes in the article is that congenital abnormalities are more common in women who've had severe exacerbations in the first trimester and preterm delivery and fetal growth restrictions are also more likely in women who've had severe exacerbations so this is about getting good control not only when pregnant but also before you're pregnant so that actually you avoid some of these pitfalls in pregnancy and she talks about the physiology around this the fact that actually oxygen desaturation is much more catastrophic in pregnancy if you like because your functional residual capacity and expiratory reserve when you're pregnant is much less so you tend to desaturate much more quickly and the unborn child is much more at risk of acidosis. So it's about really trying to make sure that you smooth out your asthma control. And we talk also about, you know, which treatments are safe in pregnancy, labbers, sabers, in, inhaled corticosteroids. And the, and the simple truth is that they are all safe in pregnancy. It's uncontrolled asthma that's unsafe in pregnancy. And uh, we've had five deaths since uh, I think 2015 to 2018 there were five deaths in asthmatic women uh, during pregnancy so it's it's actually the message is very simple and it's one that I think anyone who's involved in prescribing uh, in women should be very confident about whether you are an extended nurse prescribing in long-term conditions or whether GP specialist the answer here is women need good control of their asthma and at every stage of the pathway from conception to birth, it's about maintaining that message and making sure that the asthma is well controlled. Absolutely right. And it's other things as well. Flu jabs are really important. In the H1N1 pandemic, pregnant women were four times more likely to be admitted to hospital with flu than the rest of the population. The flu jab is completely safe in pregnancy. So it's about, you know, just it's the simple stuff which will ensure women and their child is safe. OK, thank you very much. Uh, and finally, another case report. What's this one? Yeah, this is um, this is quite an interesting one. Well, they're all interesting, but uh, this one's, I think, different from ones we've looked at in the past. This is a case of a 40-year-old patient with bipolar affective disorder who'd been taking lithium for about 16 years and was admitted with a six-month history of excessive thirst polyuria to the point where he was waking at night to drink a litre of water and was had a urine output of about four litres a day. 
and the investigations? Yeah, so the interesting thing about this, we I think we all know that lithium can cause polyuria and polydipsia. This patient's examination and investigations were actually the standard ones that we might do, completely normal. So his these were normal, he didn't have diabetes, his baseline plasma and urine osmolarities were all normal, ultrasound of his kidneys were normal. So he had no obvious secondary cause for this and therefore the, the concept was, you know, did he have some sort of diabetes insipidus and if so what was it and what I liked about this case report is that if diabetes insipidus is something which you sort of not sure about and sort of a you know how do you distinguish between someone who's got polydipsia or compulsive drinking and central or nephrogenic diabetes insipidus this article takes you through it in a nice systematic way and it's a it's a very good summary of how you manage uh, diabetes insipidus so not a major surprise that lithium was the problem but what's helpful is a refresher on diabetes insipidus and its diagnosis yes and i hadn't i hadn't clocked that the reason this happens is that lithium binds to certain receptors inside the kidney and that's why it's sort of you know, blocks kidney function. And the other learning point for me is there's a new test for diabetes insipidus. In the past, we've had to use vasopressin, which is a very fragile compound and has required quite involved ways of doing a blood test. But there's a new test, copeptin, which is much more stable and seems a much simpler uh, test to do. So it might be worthwhile if you have a patient with diabetes insipidus or you think might have, it might be worthwhile chatting to the lab to see if they do this test rather than the old-fashioned vasopressin. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. Mm-hmm.